We're in Acts chapter 2. And Acts is, it's the fifth book of the New Testament. There's the book Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are really gospels and biographies. Those are the first four books of the New Testament. These are biographies that really detail phase one of Jesus the King, his life, his ministry, and ultimately his death on a cross. And then Acts is phase two. Acts is phase two, which details like the counting work of King Jesus, who didn't just die, but Jesus who was resurrected, ascended into heaven, and now currently reigns and rules over all of creation. So we're going to be looking at Acts chapter two, beginning in verse one. But before we dive in this morning, let's pray and ask God to bless our time together. Dear God, uh, you say that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, that your testimonies are sure and they make wise the simple. Your precepts are right and make our hearts rejoice. Your commandments are pure and enlighten our eyes. This morning, God, we come to you and we ask that your word would do that very thing. It would revive our souls that it would make many of us, maybe for the first time, wise to salvation, that it would make our hearts rejoice and it would bring light to our often darkened eyes. And we ask that you would speak to us and apply your scriptures to our minds and our hearts and our lives. This passage, Acts 2, God, it shows us the riches of your word and your mighty saving works through Jesus. So would you use it? Would you use it this morning to show us just how wonderful and how good your salvation through King Jesus actually is. And we ask this all in the name of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. Well, there's a man, uh, he's in our church, his name is Terry Bate. And Terry's a deacon at Deer Creek Church. Terry, several years ago, he was diagnosed with what is known as IMF, idiopathic fibrosing mediastinitis. And now, if you don't know what that is, it's a lethal illness. And now, not to go into the whole story, because Terry received this diagnosis, and he was miraculously healed by God, without treatment, completely reversed, miraculous healing by God, this powerful work of God's spirit in his life. But what stood out to me as he was actually recounting this story a couple weeks ago to uh, a number of us, uh, he was talking about when he heard the diagnosis for the first time and the doctors consulted him by saying, you have to put your affairs in order. The doctor even went on to say, I wish I were coming in here to tell you that you have cancer. Because if that were the case, I would have a treatment option for you, but I don't. I don't have one. And he gave him this final counsel. He said, here's what you need to do. You need to record yourself. You need to record a video for your sons. He has two sons. Record a video for them so that you can speak to them on your wedding day, on their wedding day. And give them last words as they embark on this new time in their life. As they embark on a new life with their spouse. Those were the things that he was consulted by his doctor to do. <laughs> Record your last words that you want to share with your boys. And it made me think, if I had last words, what would I say? If I had last words to share with my four children, what would they be? What would I say? What advice would I give them? What sort of comfort would I want to offer them as they live the rest of their lives? It's pretty remarkable, Jesus 
had been with his apostles, his disciples for three years. He'd started ministry and, and been with them through thick and thin. He traveled with them. And his last words, his departing words, they're actually recorded for us. It's remarkable. They're actually recorded the very last words of the risen Lord Jesus to his apostles. After Jesus died and was resurrected right before he ascended into heaven, Jesus made a promise. He made a promise to his apostles. He said, apostles, you, you have to wait, but, Acts chapter 1, verse 5, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Those were Jesus' last words. A promise. Hey, you, you have to wait, but you will receive my Holy Spirit. I will send my Holy Spirit. After I ascend into heaven, you're not going to see me. You're not going to see my physical body. I'm not going to be able to eat with you or speak with you directly. But after I ascend into heaven, I will pour out my Holy Spirit. That's my promise to you. And it's absolutely fascinating because when you look back at the ministry of Jesus, Back into those biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Jesus actually repeats this promise over and over and over again. And it doesn't really register with you how often he promised this to his apostles and disciples. In fact, during the Last Supper, his last meal with his apostles, he, he gave them these words of comfort, comfort. This is recorded in the Gospel of John. He says, let not your hearts be troubled Believe in God, believe also in me. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The spirit of truth. Whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and I will be in, and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring into your remembrance all that I have said to you. You, you see, what, what Jesus is saying here is, is don't be troubled. I'm about to leave, but another one is coming. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, he will come. He will be inside of you. He will live in you. And when he comes, he, he makes it clear. Jesus says, here's what the Holy Spirit will do. John chapter 16, verse 8, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you throughout his ministry. During his last week, during the Last Supper, in his departing words, he wanted his disciples to be comforted with this promise. You have to wait, but not many days from now. This helper, the Holy Spirit, is coming. He will live inside of you. God himself will dwell in you and lead you in truth and glorify my name. That's a remarkable promise, isn't it? And 
He wanted them to be certain about this. In fact, this, this was something that John the Baptist had even promised this. John the Baptist, when he was doing his ministry, he made it clear. He said, I baptize you with a water, with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me, speaking of Jesus, is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. There's this uh, White Sox announcer. Now, I know the White Sox. I'm not a White Sox fan, but when I was growing up, the Rockies had just started getting on television, and if you wanted to watch baseball, and my, my family was baseball enthusiasts, if you wanted to watch baseball, you could really watch the Rockies, and they played later at night, or during the day, you could watch WGN, and you could watch the Cubs or the White Sox, and so we would watch a lot of White Sox games, and the White Sox, they have this announcer, he's a well-known announcer, his name is Ken Harrelson. And he has all these great iconic sayings. One of his sayings is when, you know, a White Sox player would hit a home run. He would say, oh, the ball goes back, back. You can put it on the board. Yes. Yes. It always rings in my mind. And Paul, who was deeply influenced, who deeply influenced Luke, the author of Acts, he had a similar saying, which we read earlier in this service. He said, when God makes a promise in Jesus the Christ, it is yes. It is yes and amen in Christ Jesus for the glory of God the Father. After all, God had promised the forgiveness of sins, and in Jesus that promise is yes. Did Jesus make good on the promise of new life? Yes. Did Jesus make good on the promise of resurrection life? Yes. Did Jesus cleanse his people from all of their sins, past, present, and future? Yes. Did Jesus free us from slavery to Satan and the world? Yes. Did Jesus adopt us into God's family by faith? Yes. Did Jesus transfer us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of marvelous light? Yes. Thank you. Uh, as we saw a few weeks ago, the apostles now, they're waiting, they're wondering, they're hoping and questioning, when will Jesus make good on this promise? When will it be yes and amen in Christ Jesus to the glory of God the Father? That's what they're wondering. When will he live with us? He's departed, he's been gone for 10 days. When will he send his spirit to be in us, to guide us in all truth? And the answer is found in Acts chapter 2 in verse 1. We see this remarkable promise come to fulfillment. The wait is over. Luke finally says this promise was fulfilled. Acts chapter 2 verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived. When the day of Pentecost arrived. You see in the Old Testament there were three main feast days. There was the feast of Passover then there was the Feast of Pentecost, which happened 50 days after Passover. And then after that, there was another feast day known as the Feast of Booths. And the, the whole purpose of this feast, Pentecost, was to celebrate the annual harvest. The people, you know, had set their seeds. They prayed to God for rain. And then finally, they would put the sickle in and God would bring the first fruits. And they would celebrate the faithfulness of God. It was also a celebration of the time when Moses, the man of God in the Old Testament, delivered the law of God to God's people. And when any of these celebrations happened, the expectation was that the people of God would leave their homeland and they would travel up to Jerusalem. They'd make a pilgrimage, a journey, 
all the way to Jerusalem, and there they would worship God, and they would do this these three times of year. And so here you have this great feast, this great celebration going on, taking place in Jerusalem. Jesus had already ascended into heaven 10 days prior. And you see in verse 1, now what's happening? When the day of Pentecost arrived, they, meaning all 120 disciples, all of them, they were gathered together in one place. Probably in the upper room, maybe the same area where Jesus had that last supper. That's where these 120 are gathered. And outside of this upper room, there's thousands upon thousands upon thousands and thousands of people, faithful Jews who are gathered around the temple complex around Jerusalem to come and celebrate Pentecost. And then something happens. Suddenly, verse 2, Jesus says yes and amen to his promise that he gave to his disciples. Notice, as Jesus pours out his Holy Spirit on his disciples, the miracles, the signs that accompany this baptism of the Spirit. We read, and suddenly, verse 2, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. First miracle, a sound of a mighty rushing wind. You can imagine it. You don't feel anything, right? It doesn't say they felt the wind, but it's this sound, a mighty rushing wind as the disciples are gathered together and the pilgrims in the temple court, all of a sudden they hear this roar, this sound of rushing wind, like, just like that. That's exactly what it sounded like. It's in the Greek, but you can't see it, right? It was probably a lot more climactic than that. This mighty rushing wind comes through. And then second miracle, divided tongues as a fire. Because this is a miracle, right? It sounds supernatural. It sounds inexplicable. And that's right. It is. It's inexplicable. Whenever a miracle or a sign happens in Scripture... When heaven opens up and God acts powerfully, miraculously, the human vocabulary, it has to stretch. It has to expand in order to adequately describe what's going on. So it's tongues, but that doesn't exactly do it justice. No, they're divided tongues. And they're not just divided tongues. They're divided tongues on fire. And they're not just divided tongues on fire floating aimlessly. No, he says, verse 3, that these tongues rested on each of them, each one of the early disciples, all 120 of them gathered together, the apostles, disciples, men, women, young, old, rich, poor, slaves, free. They have these divided tongues as a fire that come and they descend upon these disciples. Wow. And then final miracle, final sign in verse 4, as they're filled with God's spirit, the promise They begin to speak in other tongues, other languages, as they were directed by the Spirit. Now, most likely, all of these disciples of Jesus spoke Aramaic. That was the natural, vulgar language at the time. They spoke Aramaic. It's somewhat likely that a handful of them, but very few, one, two, maybe three or four, spoke Latin or Greek as well. And miraculously, after being filled with God's Spirit, 
after receiving this spirit, these disciples are now speaking in other recognizable languages. They're speaking Persian and Akkadian, Parthian, Pergian. They're speaking in Coptic, Berber, Sitian, and Arabic. This is what the word tongues, it's the Greek word glossolalia, means. It means intelligible known languages. Languages that the disciples never knew, they had never studied it, they had never spoken these things before, but now after the coming of the promise, miraculously they're speaking in other tongues, other languages, other glossolalia. Remember, this is Pentecost, so verse 5, look again. In verse 5, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, these are people making pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Pentecost, remember, to worship and celebrate the festival. Then verse 6, we read that at the sound of the wind and speaking of the disciples, the multitude flock together and they're all bewildered because they're hearing their language. I hear Akkadian, I hear Coptic, I hear Arabic, I hear Persian. And, and they look at the disciples and, and they say in verse 7, in amazement, right, they say, and they're amazed and astonished, saying, aren't these just Galileans? Galileans are uncultured. They're unsophisticated. They're not educated in the Greco-Roman system of education. How does this motley crew, this gang of Galilean fishermen and housewives and slaves, how do they know these languages? You see the miracle here, right? It's hard to wrap your mind around what this would look like today. It, and I was trying. I had to really stretch my imagination. You know what this is like? This is like today if somebody from Kansas or Wisconsin all of a sudden stood up here and started speaking in perfectly articulate English. That's exactly what it would be like. You know what I mean, eh? Oh, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And this Pentecost crowd, they're, they're stunned. And in amazement, they ask, verse 8, very clearly, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And, and how is it that we hear each of us in his own language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. And they're not speaking incoherently. It's not like a rattling sound that nobody understands. No, they say, we hear them telling in our own tongues, languages, glossolalia, the mighty works of God. Wow. And rumors and whispers after this, they start going through the crowd. You, you see that in verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Have you seen this before? What's going on? This is amazing. This is miraculous. I, I came because I heard the wind. I saw the divided tongues of fire. I, I hear them speaking in Syriac. How is this happening? Others are mocking, of course. You see that in verse 13. These folks, they're mocking, they're saying, ah, oh, they're drunk, they're filled with new wine. But the underlying question to this miraculous event of Pentecost, of the promise coming to fulfillment, is straightforward. The underlying question is, what does this mean? What are we witnessing here? What are these signs, these miracles? 
That's the event of Pentecost. Jesus fulfilling his promise, the Spirit of God poured out on the disciples. And then in answer to that question, Peter stands up. One of the first followers of Jesus, Peter, stands up and now he gives an explanation of what Pentecost is. To the pilgrims, to the crowd, they're saying to one another, what does this mean? Well, Peter says, hey, I'll explain. Verse 14, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, that's 9 a.m., But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Here's what's going on, Israel. Here's what this means. 600 years in the past, remember the prophet Joel had said there would be a shift, a turning point in history. Remember all the way back in Genesis when Adam and when Eve fell into sin, God made a promise to send a king. He said, one day I'm going to send a king and this King would bring his kingdom, and that king, sent of God, would powerfully save his people, taking them from the kingdom of darkness and bringing them into the kingdom of light. He would remove their sin, he would destroy the work of Satan, and he would defeat the enemy of death. All of the Old Testament anticipated that coming king. And you remember what Joel said. He said, when this king comes, there will be a shift. Once this king comes, everything that was anticipated, everything that was promised, it would finally come to fulfillment, and we would then be in the last days. Everything promised would lead to fulfillment, and then you would have the last days. You think about this, it's kind of like the Denver Broncos, okay? You think back all the way back to 2016, And that terrible year after the Broncos had won the Super Bowl and, you know, they had a losing record, but there was this promise. (laughs) One day, a new coach, a new quarterback, they are going to come in and there will be no more five and 11 seasons. There will be no more five and 12 seasons. And then we will return to playoff glory. The Vince Lombardi trophy will be ours again. And then one day it happened. Sean Payton and Russell Wilson. Fulfillment. No, wait, hold on. That doesn't work. Okay, throw that one out. You get the point. Promise, fulfillment. We're still waiting here, but not Peter. Back to Peter. He says, people of Israel, remember what Joel said? Remember what he he said? This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, verse 16. In the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, vapors of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what's going on, Israel. 
That's what's going on. You want to know what this means? Let me tell you. You are eyewitnesses to the turning point in history. We are no longer in the time of anticipation. We have now entered the last days, just as Joel said. Just as Joel said, the sound of the rushing wind, the tongues of fire, the filling with the Holy Spirit, men, women, sons, daughters, old men, young men, servants, all types of people prophesying, declaring the mighty works of God. God, what Joel said would happen, you are eyewitnesses now. This is God's sign that his king and his kingdom have come. And all who turn to the king, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved by this king. Wow. You can be saved from your sins. You can be saved from the evil one, Satan himself. And you can be saved from the power of death and the grips of hell. <laughs> wow. What does this mean? It means the king has come. He has come and he is fulfilling his promises. History has shifted. We are in the last days. Repent and believe in him. And you can imagine, right? These are all faithful Jews making pilgrimage to Jerusalem they would have scratched their head at this and they would have said, well, hold on, hold on. Because they knew the scriptures, they knew the promises. They would have thought, wait, wait, wait. If the king has come, Peter, where is he? Where's the king? Are you the king? You're not the king. Where's the king? Where's his mighty work and saving power? Where is his salvation from sin? Why is Satan still ruling? Why is death not yet defeated. If the king has come, if he's poured out his spirit, if he's fulfilled these promises, where's he at? Where's the king? And before the question can even come out of their mouth, Peter calls for their attention again, verse 22. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. He's the king. He's the Savior. You can imagine in this, in this crowd, it would have been utterly silent at this point. You could have heard a pin drop because these people knew Jesus of Nazareth. After all, it was just 50 days before. Remember, it went Passover, Pentecost, Feast of Booths. At Passover, 50 days before the religious leaders of Israel, in concert with the Roman authorities, seized Jesus of Nazareth in the middle of night. They put on a kangaroo court, slapped together a fabricated trial, and they condemned Jesus as a, as a criminal, even though he was completely innocent, and delivered him over to the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. And they remember the scene. In fact, Luke, who's the author of Acts, he recounts it in great detail. We're told that when the whole company of them arose and brought Jesus before Pontius Pilate, they began to accuse him, saying, we found this Jesus misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is the Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, speaking to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, you have said so. In other words, you have spoken correctly. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, 
Speaking of Pilate, he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I'll therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding him with loud cries. And he, they shouted for him to be crucified and their voices prevailed. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he's the Christ of God, the chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him that read, This is the king of the Jews. It was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Just like Joel said, right? The sun will be darkened. While the sunlights failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. Men of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth, he's the king. He's the savior. You remember him. After all, verse 22, Peter reminds them, in case they had forgotten that name, he reminds them of who Jesus was. He says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. You remember him. You saw his mighty works. You saw his wonders. You were eyewitnesses. You remember the miracles he performed. One time Jesus fed 5,000 men with just two loaves of bread and five fishes. And, and that's not counting all the women and children that were there. Some scholars say there could have been as many as fifteen to 20,000 people assembled for that miracle. At a public wedding, Jesus one time turned water into wine. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He healed a man who was a paralytic from birth. He healed a woman who had had a hemorrhage of blood for 12 years. These were God's signs to you, Israel, that he was the king as you yourselves know. Many of us know these things as well. We know them, but we choose to give them no attention, or we know them, but we dismiss them. I was recently Probably about a year ago, I was sitting with a young adult and we were talking about Jesus and we were recounting the miracles of Jesus. I was specifically talking about when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And I remember his response. He said, that's, that's nothing. That's, that's a spiritual metaphor. That's nothing but a fable, a myth. 
But what about this is mythical? What about this is fable? A man was dead and Jesus brought him to life. That's not fable. Fables are about foxes who eat sour grapes. Fables are about crows that put pebbles into pitchers to drink the water. As Peter himself said, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, reminding his audience, he said, we did not declare to you cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we ourselves were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This isn't fable, as you yourselves know. And many of us, even though we know them, we dismiss them. Just like this crowd at Pentecost, they knew, uh, they knew as well. Jesus was attested to humanity by God. Not a mere man can do these things, but only God who has become man, God who is king. You know the duck test. If it looks like a duck, if it walks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, then it is a... Well, if the blind receive their sight, if the lame walk, if lepers are cleansed, if the deaf hear, if the dead are raised from the grave, then as you yourselves know, the king attested by God has come. And friends, just by way of challenge, some of us may continue to dismiss it. We may call it fable. We may call it myth. But our dismissal does not make any of it untrue. And Peter again reminds this silent crowd, something they, they know as well. They already know it, but they had tried to clear it from their minds and dismiss it. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The people, along with the Roman authorities, crucified the king giving him over to the hands of lawless man, a fact that they dismissed. They wanted to forget it. They tried to forget it. Ah, he's just another criminal. Remember who he was crucified with? And again, Peter says, no, you crucified the king. And again, as you yourselves know, he didn't stay dead. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it is not possible for him to be held by it. That was public knowledge. That was public knowledge. Jesus of Nazareth was crucified, died, and buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea on Good Friday in AD 33 during the Passover feast. He lay in the tomb for three days, Friday, Saturday, and then Sunday. And on Sunday morning, the third day, Jesus, the first day of the week, was raised up, resurrected, destroying the enemy of death. A separate account says that over 500 people either heard about, witnessed, or touched the resurrected body of Jesus. This is public knowledge. And notice, just like the pouring out of the Spirit predicted and foretold by Joel, Peter says that his death and resurrection, that was also foretold. Psalm 16 Look back, you're devout Jews, you know the scriptures. Look back at Psalm 16. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Or let your Holy One see corruption. If you have your Bible in front of you, circle that word corruption. 
Okay? Circle it. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. But again, these Jews, they would have scratched their heads, right? They're like, no, 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 no. David wrote that and he wrote it about himself, Peter. That wasn't about Jesus. David wrote that. David's writing about himself. He's not talking about Jesus' death and resurrection. And as before, before the question can even come out of their mouth, Peter silences them again. He doesn't even allow them to speak. He keeps them in silence. Verse 29, he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Circle that word, corruption, again. Peter is emphatic. What he's saying here is David is not writing about himself. In Psalm 16, David is not making a self-reference. That's obvious. Why? Because David died. David died and his tomb is at the south of Jerusalem. We can walk over to the south of Jerusalem right now. We can pry open David's grave and we can look in that grave and we can see a sarcophagus with David and his flesh saw corruption. It decayed. It was dissolving, decomposed, deteriorating. The grips of death are around him. But if we were to go to the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, where Jesus was laid, and we were to pry it open, you know what we would see in that tomb? Nothing. Because Jesus is not there Corruption did not touch his body. It did not decay. It did not decompose. It did not deteriorate. David is not writing about himself. He saw corruption, but Jesus, the king, has not been abandoned to Hades. His body has not seen corruption, and David foresaw and spoke about him. <laughs> the only person in history whose flesh did not decay or decompose. So Peter gives his final point, final explanation of Pentecost, his final answer to the crowd. When they say, what does this mean? Peter says, verse 33, therefore, being exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Then verse 36, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. God has fulfilled his promise. Amen. And I lost my place in my notes. This may take a second. At Pentecost, Jesus of Nazareth, the one who was crucified, died, resurrected, and ascended. At Pentecost, this Jesus showed these eyewitnesses he is Lord and Christ by pouring out his spirit. And this same crowd, this same crowd was at Passover. 
They were eyewitnesses to Jesus' ministry, his crucifixion. Many had heard and witnessed his resurrection. And now this crowd at Pentecost, 50 days later, they are eyewitnesses to Jesus pouring out his Holy Spirit on his disciples. Therefore, everyone now should know for certain he is king. He is Lord, both Christ and God. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Last point. We've seen the event of Pentecost, the explanation of Pentecost. Lastly, the response to Pentecost, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. This crowd of faithful Jews cut to the heart. And notice what they say next to Peter. They don't say, whoa, do that again. Bring back that sound. How'd you bring the... How'd you do that? Where, where, can, can you bring those, those flaming tongues back down? Show us more miracles. Speak to me again in my language. How did you do that? Can I do that? The reason I bring that up is, is many believe that if the Holy Spirit's at work today, you need to repeat miracles. You need to have these miraculous healings, supernatural wonders. And by the way, praise God that he does that still. God heals the sick. God actually cast demons out even today. God powerfully works miracles. He heals. He brings supernatural wonders because he's an awesome God. But the primary and most powerful work of God's spirit cuts much deeper. It cuts to the heart. The primary work of the spirit, just like Jesus promised, is to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And when people hear that, Jesus is glorified and they have to run to him for truth. So the crowd says to Peter and the rest of the apostles, after being cut to the heart, brothers, what shall we do? We have sin on our hands. We crucified the king. We dismissed him and tried to shuttle him off into the corner because we didn't like his message. And Peter says, very simply, there's one response. Verse 38, Peter encourages them saying, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you. You who betrayed and dismissed and tried to stuff Jesus into the corner, it's for you who are far off it's for you and for your children, all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. What a radical message. What a radical message. It doesn't matter if you're a follower of Jesus or if you are not yet a follower of Jesus. I can say this for certain. Because I experience it every single day. When we sin, our first temptation is to hide our sin. To stuff it, to cover it, to pretend like it's not there, to pretend like we're not really struggling. Peter says, no, 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 that's not the response. Bring that sin to Jesus. That's what repentance is. Repentance means turning away from your sin and turning to the 
King, Jesus, whom we crucified, no longer dismissing him or paying him no attention. Repentance means bringing your sin to the King so that you might be forgiven, so that you might be embraced, so that you might experience his love and grace, which he wishes to pour out on all who betray him. The other day, I'll close on this. You're welcome. The other day, an argument broke out at our house. We're sitting at dinner, and sitting next to me is McLean and Eli. This argument breaks out because I had said McLean said something to me. And I knew McLean had said something to me, but she was adamant she did not say it to me. I didn't say that, Dad. I didn't say that. And I tried to remind her, well, we were in the car. Remember we were driving. Remember you said this. This song was on. I'm trying to recount all the details. And all of a sudden, she bursts into tears. She's saying, I didn't do that. I didn't say that. And then Eli, trying to defend Dad, starts to say to McLean, yeah, you did. I heard you say it. I heard you say it. You said it. You said it. And McLean is bursting into tears. She's frustrated. I didn't say that. And I know Eli wasn't there. <laughs> so it's like, Eli, I appreciate what you're trying to do, but my daughter is crying. Your sister is crying. This probably isn't the time to press in, but he's pressing in and pressing in, and she's just weeping. So finally, I'm frustrated. And I said, Eli, how would you even know? You weren't even there. And instead of one crying daughter, I had one crying daughter and a crying son. <laughs> and I have to tell you, throughout that day, I was plagued with guilt. Oh, plagued with guilt. And, and I know in those moments, I was tempted to believe, and it's the lie of Satan. I was tempted to believe that I have to cover my sin, pretend like it's not there, pretend like I am a good parent, pretend like I'm a good husband. After all, he started it right? And pretend like I'm not a sinner. Later that night, as we go home, we're having dinner, I, I came to Eli and I said, you know, remember this morning when I made you cry? Remember when I yelled at you during breakfast? You remember that? I said, yeah. I looked my son in the eye and said, Eli, I should not have done that. I'm so sorry. I raise my voice at you. That is sin in my heart. It's anger that wants to control you and control your sister. I am so, so, so sorry. Will you please forgive me for what I've done? I'm down on my knees and I'm weeping to my son. And you know what Eli did? He forgave me. And you know in my experience, because I've done it a lot, my kids have never not forgiven me. The same is true with Jesus the King. The former days are gone. We're in the last days, the time of fulfillment. The promise is complete. The King has poured out his spirit, the spirit who convicts us of sin. Yes. Who glorifies Jesus and his saving work. Yes. And to draw us back to him for forgiveness, grace, and love. Yes. This Jesus whom you dismissed and crucified because of your sins, he invites you back again and again and again and again. And we will sin more times than we can even recount. But the promises of God in Jesus are yes.
So let everyone know for certain that God has made him both Lord and King, this Jesus whom you crucified. Repent, all of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. You will be washed as white as snow. For all the promises of God in Jesus are yes. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. And you deserve all honor and glory forever and ever. You are the one attested to us by God the Father as the God of God and King of kings. You were crucified to save us from our sins and to destroy the power of Satan, the evil one who tempts us to believe you are not good. You were crucified and ascended into heaven. You have defeated death and Jesus, we thank you that you have poured out your spirit and you are fulfilling all the promises of God. Jesus, we confess to you, we are sinful, not just in our actions, not in just what we do, but to the core of our being. And many of us this morning, we feel this profoundly. We dismissed you. We've turned away from you too many times to count. And many of us, because of that, we're just carrying a tremendous burden this morning because of our sin. So would you forgive us? By your spirit who's poured into our hearts, would you turn us once again in repentance? Would you forgive us of our sins and embrace us by your love and grace once again? Help us not to believe the lies of the evil one, the lies that we have to hide and protect ourselves, the lies that we're too far gone to be forgiven. Help us to repent. Turning from sin and turning to you, the King, the one in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen to the glory of God the Father. In your name, King Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Let's